0: This episode is supported by 3D Hubs. 3D Hubs is the online, on-demand manufacturing solution for sourcing high-precision CNC parts. 3D Hubs understands that sourcing parts from quality manufacturers in a cost-effective way can involve a lot of hassle and time. That's why 3D Hubs has developed an online, on-demand manufacturing platform that allows you to send CNC parts to production in less than five minutes. Simply upload your parts and specify your material, process and desired surface finish. After specifying the requirements, you'll receive an instant price for manufacturing. Check the manufacturability of your parts with instant DFM feedback tools, and when you're ready, submit your order. When submitted, your orders picked up by one of their certified manufacturing partners with instant capacity available. You can also keep track of the status of your order all the way until you have your parts in your hands. 3D Hubs works with engineers worldwide from the US and Australia to Europe to help them source their CNC machined parts hassle-free and cost-effectively. To learn more about 3D Hubs and to receive an instant quote for your CNC parts, go to 3Dhubs.com slash CNC machining.
1: If it's one area where every month there's, a, there's positive news, is when you go and look at the EVs. Like Norway now, last month, we had um, the sales of battery electric vehicles, and it's, there's 100% electric was, was 40.7%. Uh, and it's really, last year, it was above 30%. Mm-hmm. And if you bring in the plug-in, uh, the plug-in hybrids, you get over 50%. But it's, it is then to remember how fast this has happened. Because just six years ago, 2013, I, I was in Barcelona holding a speech also on the EVs, on the EV17, I think. That was the first month uh, in uh, September, October, when no- Norwegian sales uh, went above 5%. That's six years ago. And now we have the goal that by 2025, 20, it's going to be 100% of sales. Mm-hmm. And that seems like, a, a, like it's all, that it cannot be done. But look at the speed. Six years uh, from it was five, now we are passing 50. With the technological development that we, have, that we see, I'm certain that we are on track to reaching the goal of 100% of sales by 2025, or close to it. This is possible and doable.
0: Welcome to Engineering Matters, with navn name, Bernadette Ballantyne. name Bernadette Ballantyne, And sadly, that's the extent of my Norwegian. But this is Engineering Matters, I'm Bernadette Ballantyne, and this episode was created in Norway at the Nordic EV Summit, hosted by the Norwegian Electric Vehicle Association. We wanted to discover how the land of the midnight sun became the world's most successful electric vehicle market, ...and find out what lessons Norway's experience can offer to other countries like the UK... ...who are looking to emulate their success in decarbonising transport. As Ola Elverstuen, who's Norway's Minister of Climate and Environment, just explained... six years ago, only five percent of new vehicles were electric. And if we go back a little further... ...it was the introduction of the Mitsubishi iMiv in 2010... ...and then the Nissan Leaf in 2011 that really kick-started demand in the market which today accounts for over half of all new vehicle sales. In fact, since Ola Elvestuen gave this update just a few weeks ago, Tesla Model 3s have begun arriving in Norway, pushing new EV sales up to 58% of total purchases. Norway is therefore the world leader in terms of market penetration, with over 5 million people and 300,000 electric cars, that's a 6% penetration rate. So although China has the most electric cars in the world with 2.2 million, their market penetration is still less than 1%. So what's Norway's secret? How is this cold northerly country converting its population to electric vehicles, especially when its climate exacerbates one of the biggest challenges facing the global electric vehicle market? Range anxiety. Battery efficiency is much lower in cold temperatures, but of course that can be addressed through charging infrastructure investment. And we'll look more at that later in this episode.
1: We know what works, and the cars are becoming better and better. And they are, uh, they, what Norway also shows that the cars are good enough, as long as the price is right. And here, if you can afford a car, you can afford an electric car.
0: And this is key. Norway started looking at policy incentives almost 20 years ago, when there weren't even any electric cars available to buy. Since 1990, there's been no import tax on electric cars, and in 2001, they became exempt from VAT at 25% too. This means that a new electric car is actually cheaper to buy than its petrol or diesel counterpart. It's not just national policy that's encouraged electric vehicle adoption. Lanmarie Berg is the vice mayor for environment and transport in Oslo, which made global headlines just a few weeks ago when it announced that almost 80% of new vehicle sales in the city in March were electric.
2: In Oslo, we want to become a zero-emitting city by 2030. And our recipe for climate leadership is to take the following five steps. It's to set a target that is in line with the Paris Agreement and uh, especially also the 1.5 ambition of the Paris Agreement. Then it is to make everything Zero emission, including heavy-duty transport and construction machinery.
0: Yes, you did hear that correctly. Zero emission construction machinery has become a municipal requirement in Oslo, and we're going to look at that in more detail in another electric vehicle podcast. Uh,
2: Then we have to give people a good alternative to the private car, meaning that that the easiest thing has to be to use public transport, walking and bicycling. We have to capture the carbon from our waste incineration, um, incineration in our city and we have to use a climate budget to make sure that we reach our target.
0: Electric vehicle use is part of a larger targeted plan to reduce city emissions and contribute to global efforts to meet the Paris Climate Change Agreement, which is discussed more and more in our podcast. And check out episode 17 if you want to hear more about that.
2: And the good thing about doing climate policies in cities such as Oslo and cities all over the world is that it also makes our cities better to live in, with better air quality, safer roads to school for our children, and so on. But the most important thing is that the climate policies work. We just got uh, the numbers, from, or the last figures, from emissions for 2017, and they went down with 9%. And the largest part of the reduction came from more use of biofuels and uh, also changing to cleaner cars. And uh, what we know in Oslo, still transportation is um, the largest source of greenhouse gas emissions in Oslo. But as you might have heard, uh, we have the first mass market for electric vehicles in the world in Norway. And so far in March, 77% of all cars sold in Oslo were electric
0: transport is the biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions because norway's already decarbonized its energy industry at least in terms of domestic consumption its mountainous terrain makes it a perfect location for hydropower which accounts for 99 percent of electricity generation it has almost 34 gigawatts of installed capacity and massive reservoirs meaning that it's got great storage potential and can be used flexibly Wind Power 2 is supporting renewable energy use with 33 wind farms operational in the country. Lamarie says the reason Oslo is converting to electric faster than anywhere else is because of its local policies, which have included free car parking, exemption from the congestion charge and free use of bus lanes. I wanted to find out if this was really the case, so I turned to some Oslo residents and good friends of mine, Caroline and Poleric, who do indeed own an electric vehicle the Nissan Leaf, and I asked them why they drove an EV.
3: The
1: main reason was to get to work without a congestion charge, so saving £12 a day.
4: And also saving time by knowing that you could use the uh, uh, the, the bus lanes, so in the congestion of morning transport. Yeah,
5: and and... But the, the, the
1: third reason is also financial that you don't have to pay for petrol, You uh, electricity is far cheaper.
0: But they note that this is their second car and that they still have a diesel engine vehicle for long journeys.
1: It
4: has to also be said, I think, for, from our point of view, that we chose an electric car as our second car. Mm. Uh, we realised that we needed two cars uh, to get the logistics to work out and pull out needed one to go to work every day. Um, I think with the state of the technology as it is today, I would still be uncomfortable with relying solely on a, an electric car. We have some friends that do only have an electric mm. car, they typically have Teslas, which have longer battery.
0: Yeah, they've got bigger uh, batteries, longer yeah, yeah, range. The, yeah. the longer range.
4: Um, but just when Paul Eric was mentioned there with going to the mountains or, or having the flexibility to go long distances with two small children, I wouldn't feel comfortable yeah. with relying on an electric car yeah. and suddenly ending up in a, situ- in a place where I suddenly ran out of, uh, of yeah. electricity.
0: And this is a very real fear for many electric vehicle owners, especially those who were early movers. Battery cell technology is constantly improving and after a slow start, manufacturers are now making weekly announcements about new makes and models with increasingly efficient and powerful batteries. According to the Norwegian Road Traffic Information Council, the five top-selling electric cars in Norway last month were the Tesla Model 3, the Volkswagen e-Golf, the BMW i3, the Nissan Leaf and the Audi e-tron. But the introduction of cars with greater range is only part of the solution. The other issue is public charging infrastructure. Although Norway has around 12,000 charging stations in the country, less than 3,000 of those are for fast charging, according to the European Alternative Fuels Observatory. And fast charging is what people really want if they need to charge during a journey. Norway's Electric Vehicle Association, which has 70,000 members, has carried out extensive research into electric vehicle charging, It found that 80% of EV users had experienced problems using fast chargers in Norway. Erik Lawrence is Head of Analysis and Consulting at the Norwegian Electric Vehicle Association, and he moderated a panel discussion with charging providers to explore the teething troubles of this new and vital infrastructure. In fact, it was so good that I'm going to play some of it for you.
6: Hi, uh, and welcome to this session where we're going to discuss fast charging, which happens to be my all-time favorite topic. And we have many interesting things we we could discuss. Um, And one of the things we are going to look at is the uptime of fast chargers. And the reason behind this is not because I've had a few long distance trips recently with a lot of bad charging experiences. Well, it's one reason, but it's not the main reason. We have actually asked the EV users. And 80% of those who use fast chargers, they have experienced that the fast chargers are not working.
0: So, as this is Eric's favourite subject, he was determined to ask charger manufacturers what was going wrong.
6: It's just not once in a while, it's happening quite often. And of course one thing is the numbers, but behind these numbers we find real persons, real families. They have chosen to go electric and they are struggling with charging. So for me this is sort of indicating that maybe fast charging isn't really ready for a mass market. So that's what I'm hoping to discuss today with the panel. We're going to meet uh, some of the fast-charging manufacturers, the ones who actually
3: make the chargers. So my name is uh, Steven Dorstein. I'm uh, coming from the Netherlands, part of ABB. I'm sales manager for Europe for car charging. So far, uh, ABB is a company in hundreds countries, uh, 30 billion euros, sorry, US dollar. Uh, In total, we have sold 10,500 fast-charging systems, um, of which Uh, 1,200 high-power systems ranging from uh, 150 kilowatts to 450 kilowatts for cars and buses in more than uh, now at the moment in 74 countries.
6: Okay, thank you. So 10,500 chargers. Uh,
5: Pedro? Good morning. My name is Pedro Domingues. I'm coming from Portugal. I represent a Portuguese company named Efasec Electric Mobility. Uh, We are dedicated to charging infrastructure. Uh, and so far, we have installed around 5,000 chargers, fast chargers, all over the world. Um, when we talk about ultra-fast charging systems, we have installed roughly 500 uh, systems so far. Uh, and we are operating in 65 different countries. Thank you. And lastly, Manuel. My name is Manuel Fernandez,
7: also from Portugal, but working in an Australian company living in the Netherlands. <laughs> <laughs> so a quite a <laughs> big mix. <laughs> Uh, and due to e-mobility and a nice picture I had before was taken in 2011 when I joined immobility, where my first visit and installed charger was Norway. So I bring that history back to that old picture, but, but the start of e-mobility. At this stage at Tritium, this Australian technology company, now fully established both in Europe and in the US. And where I lead now, a team of 45 persons in Europe to fully cover the European market. Worldwide, we have approximately 3,000 chargers out of each 500 high power chargers of uh, 150 to 350 kilowatts.
0: Eric got straight to the point, and in true Scandinavian style, he asked very challenging questions in a really friendly way.
6: So, you have close to 20,000 chargers Together. amongst you, uh, and the EV users are telling us that they are not working. Uh, so, so, <laughs> so, so what is your experience when it comes to uptime and, and what should we expect, what is good enough?
7: Yeah. So I, I think first of all I would like to explain that there are four actors into charge a car.
0: This is Manuel Fernandez by the way from Tritium.
7: There's the car of course and we go backwards the charger that charges the car but then there's the energy input and the management system to, to control the network. And so there's typically four actors involved to have a successful charging, but many times it's only looked, oh, this charger doesn't work. So we need to open up a little bit more the the, the vision and see, okay, when something doesn't work, there are four potential uh, involved uh, actors that that can have something related to it. Exactly. Uh,
6: But how how are you testing chargers? Are you you testing them at all or just putting them out there in the (laughs) hands of the consumers?
3: (laughs) No, we have, um, we have as ABB, we have almost with all car makers, we have charges in the world standing at their premises. So at their headquarters and at their develop center. And um, sometimes we have golden charges there, as we say. So there, uh, before a car is released or before we release new software, we test it together. Um, so that is the ideal case. Uh, however, it always happens sometimes that Uh, cars are put on the market, which are not tested with the the charges, and then this can run into problems. And next to that, there are, um, especially by the Sharin organization, CCS, we have uh, plug-fest or interoperability testing areas where, let's say, we all as uh, manufacturers are there and the car makers also come.
7: Shademo promotes similar events of, of testing.
0: Here, Manuel and Steven just mentioned the two main types of fast chargers that use direct current, as opposed to the slower domestic chargers that rely on AC. CHAdeMO came first in 2010, introduced by Japanese manufacturers and used on the Mitsubishi and Nissan EVs. European and American manufacturers then responded with their own system in 2011, known as the Combined Charging System. You'll hear this called CCS. It quickly became favoured by European and US manufacturers. Despite Chatmo getting a head start, thanks to Nissan's blistering early progress on mass EV production, CCS seems to be becoming the more dominant fast charge technology.
6: Would you like to add something from your side? You yeah, are testing uh, the chargers? as, as
5: uh, Manuel was saying, the hardware is not the piece that typically fails. It's more related to the software communication or even the use case that you have, particularly on that operator. Uh, and this uh, is causing a lot of uh, problems uh, when the user reach the charges and try to use it. Um, We have different operators with different uh, versions, different ways of doing the things. Uh, And of course this mixture becomes a little bit like explosive. We also test machines 100% before shipping them uh, and they leave the premises operating and and functioning. Uh, But sometimes uh, things happen and it takes some time to fix and repair the the bug typically that has to be done.
6: But what should I, as an end user, what should I expect? Should it work 90% of the time, 95%, 99%? 99. 99.
7: So first, uh, I'm a driver of an yeah. electric car, and my expectation is that it works 99. Yeah, but so as we three said,
6: and a half days year, I should expect it not to work.
7: <sighs> you should expect that has some maintenance. <laughs> I th- I think <laughs> think not to work is a better. I think today I think the
5: systems are connected. And uh, if you are using the apps that your provider gives you, uh, you know if the system is operational or not operational. So uh, if the app says that you have the possibility to use it, for sure you, you will have it available.
3: Yeah. And next to that, you also see operators who plan uh, more stations on one side that in case one system would go down for one kind of reason, that uh, on that same location there is another charger available. But I think typically uptimes uh, in optimal use uh, with our equipment are around uh, 99.8%. 99.8.
6: Yeah, well, that's starting to help. Yeah.
3: Yes, yeah. but but uh, as, as Manuel said, there is uh, a lot of reasons why uh, sometimes 99.8 is not reached. First of all, you start with the, the GSM connections, which cannot be totally stable. Um, but then the charger still works, but it's not connected. Um, so there can be a lot of reasons yeah. why you deviate from the optimal. Yes,
6: but when you when you're losing connection to the phone network, yeah. your chargers they go into open mode or?
7: Depends on operator. Yeah, That's yes. the point. But are you pushing That's, for it? We work. Different operators have different business models and ways of acting. Some allow us to have remote access to the charges, where we then can support them better and faster, and the reaction times are in hours and not days. Yeah. The ones that provide closed networks, then we are not having any access to support them, so we need to physically send someone. And that, making it in hours, it's not yet viable for small-scale
6: yeah, networks. But waiting for hours yet. is not fun. I can't wait for hours for you to fix it. I know, it. I
7: understand. So it is extremely important that the access to technology and the remote access to things so that we can solve it in minutes when people are waiting and every minute counts as 10 minutes. Yeah. So, but. The interconnection of the system also comes to the other side that we spoke that is the vehicles so charges have many times to be certified to be released to be installed cars are not certified and backwards compatible to what is the infrastructure creating many times a new model coming out uh, interoperability issues but then didn't charge my car. My car is brand new, it's from a good brand, why shouldn't? So all the three of us, together with all other manufacturers, try our best to promote interoperability testing uh, in order to secure that no car that is released hasn't been tested. But it's not just up to us, it's up to the car makers to secure that other part of the...
6: So, so, so to sum it up, we can blame you sometimes, the car manufacturers sometimes, yeah. the charging operators sometimes, but never the end, end user, right?
5: They sometimes, sometimes. also
0: <laughs> you. Later, Eric interrogated the operators, who were mainly energy companies. They all talked about their massive expansion plans for fast charging, with fuel station brand Circle K explaining its desire to become an energy station, not a fuel station. It already has 300 chargers at 60 sites, but it's seeking to double the sites and quadruple the number of chargers. But was this kind of investment going to be enough? I found Eric to find out more about how charging infrastructure was keeping pace with the boom in new cars.
6: Well, in Norway we sort of started with the cars and then we are adding the charging infrastructure afterwards. Uh, and there's been a very rapid development for the last especially two years. Uh, up until recently the charging operators they needed public funding to build and uh, expand stations. But what we're seeing in the last two years is that this is starting to become a business case. So the operators are willing to expand and build new stations without the need for public funding. But not all over the country. This is mainly happening in and around the larger cities and on the main highways. So we still have issues with more remote areas where it's not a business case to offer fast charging.
0: Eric explained that users are reporting increasing numbers of charging queues and reliability problems with chargers. I asked him about the standardisation issue that the charging manufacturers have pointed to as being one of the reasons that chargers were not always working.
6: We see that when new cars enter the market, they often have to adjust the software a bit before it works on all the different chargers. And sometimes when they sort of uh, fix the firmware on the fast chargers to accompany new cars, some of the older cars suddenly doesn't work as well. So it is about standardisation. It should be standardised. There is a group working on this. Uh, especially on the CCS uh, charging uh, standards, but it just isn't implemented in the same way yet.
0: One of the side effects of the maturing market is that the much discussed issue of range anxiety is actually turning into something else.
6: A range anxiety basically means that you're a bit afraid that you will not have enough range to arrive at your target or destination, uh, and this is, uh, has been a you know, well-developed word in Norway for the last few years, and we, but we also see that it is being replaced by charging anxiety, because you quite quickly realize or learn how far you can actually drive your car. Then it's more about will you actually find a fast charger, will it work, will there be a charging queue, and so on. So we see that range and anxiety is being replaced by charging and anxiety. And we get a lot of feedback from our members that they are experiencing charging queues. The fast chargers are full and they have to wait in line. Uh, and this is becoming uh, a major concern at the moment because the development on the car side is going so tremendously fast. We're likely to add 70, 75, maybe 80,000 new battery electric vehicles in Norway during 2019. And of course, to keep up with the demand on the charging side, that's a real challenge. It takes time to build charging stations. You need to connect them to the grid. You need to do this and you need to do that. And it just takes a bit of time.
0: I asked Eric what lessons Norway can offer other markets in terms of EV adoption. He said it was all about price.
6: Well, I think the the most important thing is that people, they have to be able or afford to actually buy the cars. You can build all the chargers you want. If, if people are not buying the cars, it makes no sense. Mm. So what we have done in Norway is to use uh, very strong incentives uh, at the time of purchase. So we have uh, zero value added tax on zero emission cars and we also have, usually we have a high purchase tax on cars. And this tax is on average around 9000 euros for petrol and diesel cars. What we have done for the zero emission cars is to remove all the taxes, which means that when you go to a car dealership, the price on the e-golf and the price on the petrol golf is more or less the same. The e-golf is actually slightly cheaper often. So this means that you have sort of leveled the the purchase price, and that's the foundation of the Norwegian EV success, and then Mm -hmm. we have several other incentives on top of that to, to make it an even better choice to go electric. Uh, This is new technology, people are a bit unsure of it. They do need to plan more, they need to figure out charging and so on. So, So for a while longer we still need strong incentives. At the same time we see that the car industry are starting to improve, they are building uh, cars in higher volumes we are starting to see the prices going down so so we see that we at some point we can of course stop subsidizing or stop mm-hmm. incentivizing the cars and that's yeah. key yeah, and what we see in oslo and also in bergen is that when you sort of put local incentives like free toll roads on top of the national incentives you get even higher market shares mm-hmm. so, so people vote with, vote with their wallet i'm not yeah. very surprised about that but no
0: me neither and what about the cost of charging is it uh, i think you produced a paper a couple of years ago that that talked about uh, charging per minute. Of charge. Yes,
6: of course. You do most of your charging at home, which is cheap and easy. But when it comes to fast charging today in the Norwegian market, we pay per the minute. That's the sort of normal business model today. So you pay per the minute to access the charger, regardless of how much uh, electricity you actually get out of it.
0: So as these charges become uh, more powerful. And they, yeah. are, they are becoming more powerful.
6: <laughs> uh, up until recently, all the chargers were 50 kilowatts, except Tesla, who has their own system. But today we see more and more 150 to 350 kilowatt chargers. But of course, we also need the cars to be able to accept the higher charging speeds. Yeah. So at the moment, the cars are lagging a bit when it comes to yeah. being able
0: to... Yeah, we are seeing more of the SUV and larger battery models yeah. coming out. Um, and it's great that there is some charging infrastructure actually being put in place, but will the, the model for pricing the charging change as well?
6: We think that the operators in Norway are sort of wanting to test new price models but are sort of waiting to see who moves first yeah. and we also know that price models in other countries are different and when several new charging operators are looking at entering the Norwegian market, so I think we'll see sort of a mix of different approaches before mm-hmm. we sort of, sort of start to stabilise the, the way to do it yeah. in a few years.
0: Norway's surging electric vehicle market then owes its success to its government which in seeking to decarbonise the transport industry has implemented national policies to enable its population to be able to buy electric, taxing the technologies that they don't want and promoting cars that run on renewable energy. Of course missing out on tax revenue is something that Norway can afford to do thanks to the £23 billion in revenues that it makes every year from its oil and gas exports. And it's this that led schoolchildren to strike outside the parliament buildings on the Friday that we were in Oslo. I've never seen young people protest against anything on this scale before, one local observer told me. Nevertheless, Norway's policies are working. The country has used its fossil fuels to build a decarbonised economy that offers an example to the rest of the world. And national policies are influencing the local ones. Cities like Oslo and Bergen are making it more attractive for residents to drive electric, with free parking, no congestion costs and uses of bus lanes. But a side effect of this explosive growth is that the public network of fast charging is struggling to keep up with demand. Users are reporting queues and unreliability of chargers, which is compounding charging anxiety and preventing users from being completely reliant on their electric vehicles. Private investment in charge infrastructure naturally focuses around demand hubs like cities and public investment is needed to support infrastructure in rural locations. Standardisation around the interoperability between chargers and cars is clearly a much needed step to improving user experience. Even in markets without such generous incentives, electric vehicle demand is rising as individuals seek to lower their carbon footprint and reduce fuel bills. From an initial slow response to the electric vehicle demand, car manufacturers have invested in a multitude of new models, but now found themselves constrained by battery availability. They're also facing serious questions about the ethical practices of mining companies, particularly in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where cobalt, which is used as a cathode material in batteries, is mined. Described as the blood diamond of batteries, Amnesty International is calling on governments as well as manufacturers in the automotive industry to sign up to an ethical battery. This is a lesson that must be learned all over the world. Here's the Secretary General of Amnesty International, Kumi Naidoo.
8: One boy, Paul, started mining at the age of 12. He told researchers that the prolonged time that he spent underground had made him constantly ill. And I quote... I would spend 24 hours down in the tunnels. I arrived in the morning and would leave the following morning. I had to relieve myself down in the tunnels. My foster mother planned to send me to school, but my foster father was against it. He exploited me by making me work in the mine. Many children do not go to school at all in the DRC. Even children who went to school, worked 10 to 12 hours during the weekends, and and school holidays, and some children who are attending school are having to do two to three, four hours, even on days that they do schooling. Several children said that they had been beaten or seen other children beaten by security guards employed by mining companies when they trespassed on their concessions. These men, women, and children are driven by poverty to work in these dangerous 65%
0: Conditions. 65% of cobalt is mined in the south of the DRC and 20% of that is mined by hand.
8: But let's be clear, this is totally a global issue, what's happening in the DRC. The, explo- the exploitation of these miners has to be taken as a global challenge because failure to do so will undermine the journey that the electric vehicle industry is on and the positive things that this industry can offer to the world. So, cobalt mined in DRC goes to China, where it is further smelted or processed. The cobalt then either stays in China for further processing or goes to Japan or South Korea, where it is used in the manufacturing of batteries. Ultimately, the batteries are sold on to big brands globally, many of which are of course in this room here with us as well today.
0: Could this be the most important lesson for the electric vehicle industry? And if so, what's the answer to the problem?
8: We believe the time has arrived for the industry now to commit to create an ethical battery for the future. Amnesty International is calling on governments to legally require electrical vehicle companies and battery manufacturers to produce, investors, to produce, and investors and consumers to demand the creation of an ethical battery. This means that governments such as Norway should require that their companies conduct human rights investigations throughout their global operations. This includes in their mineral supply chains and in relation to all human rights.
0: Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media, hosted and produced by Bernadette Ballantyne, edited by John Young, with fact-checking by Rhea Owen. Special thanks to the Norwegian Electric Vehicle Association, the Norwegian Ministry of Climate and Environment, Oslo City Government, Tritium, EFASEC, ABB, and Amnesty International, and of course my fantastic Oslo-based friends Caroline and Polerik. Rory Harris is the electrical producer. If you like this podcast, please leave us a comment or review on your podcast app. This really helps others to hear about us. Or simply tell a friend to have a listen. Engineering Matters can be found on all podcast apps and on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media. We're also on Facebook, Reddit and LinkedIn. And you can follow us on Twitter at Engineer Matters.